Hi, I'm Bill Wiley. I'm Stephen Dell. And I'm Rob Weinstock. And we're the co-chief medical editors of Cataract and Refractive Surgery Today. The summer is heating up and just in time for in-person conferences to resume. With the ASCRS heading to Las Vegas next month and the long pause of having to formally introduce colleagues at an actual podium, now is as good time as any to talk about the use of professional titles. Did you know that women are more likely to be introduced by their first names and not their professional titles than men? On today's episode, Tanya Trin from the Sydney Eye Hospital and the University of Queensland in Australia talks about unconscious gender bias and its most important contributing factor, imposter syndrome. She identifies risk factors for imposter syndrome, provides examples of unconscious gender bias in ophthalmology, and suggests steps for combating imposter syndrome, including acknowledging it exists and evaluating its impact. Let's listen in as Dr. Trin reads her article from the June issue of CRST. Some things in life we remember more vividly than others. Fond memories, monumental decisions, milestones, conversations that have had a lasting impact. For me, one memorable conversation was an exchange over coffee with a close male colleague in whom I have a huge amount of trust and whom I admire greatly. I remember being excited about collaborating with him at an educational event that I had hoped to be the highlight of the quarter. During our conversation, I suggested that we add a female speaker to the panel because in the history of this event, there had yet to be a nominated female guest speaker. I will never forget the instantaneous manner in which he turned to me and said, I choose people based on a meritocracy. His comment held no malice, but by his tone, I knew that it was the end of the conversation. I remember feeling a flush of heat hit my face, my neck go red, and my mouth go dry as I uttered, of course it's a meritocracy, I wouldn't have it any other way. I was stung. I felt so embarrassed by the implication that this male colleague thought that I wanted to put a woman on the panel just because she was, well, a woman. I found myself questioning why I even thought that it was my place to make suggestions for the panel. I clearly had no understanding of how to select people to be on a panel of that caliber. I went home feeling deeply unsettled. In that instant, I had become an imposter. Imposter syndrome can be defined as doubting one's ability and harboring an internalized feeling of being a fraud even in the face of objective evidence that clearly suggests otherwise. It is known to exist in people of both sexes, but its prevalence can be disproportionately high in women. Alarmingly, this syndrome can be crippling, and most importantly, both men and women exhibit unconscious gender bias that can inadvertently and innocently contribute to imposter syndrome. 
Now we can break this cycle by being aware of imposter syndrome, communicating and acting with intention, designing systems free of inherent gender bias, which goes a long way in acknowledging that women represent 50% of the world's ability and ensuring that this talent pool is not ignored. Let's break down imposter syndrome. It is a toxic psychological pattern. Individuals who experience it doubt their own talents, accomplishments and intelligence even when objective measures support their achievements and point otherwise. Two psychology professors, Clance and Imes, coined the term imposter syndrome in 1978 and hypothesized that women are more susceptible to men to experiencing it because success for women is contraindicated by societal expectations and preconceived self-evaluations. The inherent problem in this terminology, however, is that it places the onus of responsibility to fix the problem squarely on the individual. It is imperative that we recognize that self-limiting beliefs are fostered by and are the end product of systemic conditioning and inherent gender bias over a lifetime. Imposter syndrome is pervasive affecting about 70% of all individuals. We live in a complex ecosystem of gestures, words, symbolism and actions that reinforce these destructive thoughts. Imposter syndrome has been described to be experienced more often by individuals who have overprotective parents with exceedingly high expectations who take on advanced coursework and pursue graduate degrees, who are surrounded by high achievers, who may be the first in a generation or ethnicity or minority group to achieve a certain accomplishment, who identify with a minority group alone, or who define success or competence in one of five ways, the perfectionist, the expert, the naturally talented, the soloist, or the superhuman. Other studies report that men are more likely to attribute their success to their own innate ability and talent, whereas women are more likely to attribute their success to the hard work they did to get there. This is a crucial difference in philosophy. In other words, women are more likely to explain away their success oh, I had help along the way, or it was the team, not me, rather than take ownership of their success. Conversely, men are more likely to attribute failure to their lack of interest in work, whereas women faced with failure are more likely to internalize their sense of shame and blame themselves and their lack of ability. Imposter syndrome is associated with high rates of depression, anxiety, burnout, and an inability to sleep and focus. It is known to affect individuals with certain personality traits such as the following. The procrastinators. These individuals will frequently put off a task because they know it's not going to meet the impossibly high standard that they set for themselves. The overpreparers. 
These individuals spend a disproportionately huge amount of time on a task versus what is necessary in order to achieve a successful outcome. The hesitant contributors. These individuals may hold back their ideas or may not nominate themselves for a position because they feel that they have no right to belong. A critical, evidence-based review of the literature on unconscious gender bias reveals many, many examples in medicine and ophthalmology. Letters of Recommendation In 2009, the University of Arizona reviewed 300 letters of recommendation for male and female medical faculty and compared the language within. Letters of recommendation for men were 16% longer on average and two and a half times more likely to include ringing endorsements like he is the man for the job, he's the one you want for that position. Men's letters were also more likely to mention their ability or achievements, career and research, whereas women's letters were seven times more likely to include descriptions of personal characteristics irrelevant to the application. Women's letters were also twice as likely to include negative comments about personality and were also 50% more likely to use grindstone adjectives such as hard worker rather than words to describe her actual ability. Now, it is vitally important to recognize that the individuals writing these letters of recommendation did not purposely set out to write in a different way or use different criteria for their male and female candidates. This is a powerful example of systemic inherent bias. Resident Applications In 2019, another group reviewed the 2017 and 2018 ophthalmology residency applications for a medical school in the United States. There were equal numbers of male and female letter writers. The researchers also accounted for the same baseline characteristics of the candidates, including sex, grade point average, numbers of honour awards and academic activities, and yet they still concluded that the same types of language bias were present in the applications as were found in the 2009 study. Sadly, not much changed between 2009 and 2019. We still have so much to be cognizant of. Positions of power. Today, women have greater access than ever to educational opportunities. And since the 1970s, more women have been pursuing business, law, and medical degrees. These changes, however, have not translated into a commensurate increase in the number of women in positions of power. This is, in itself, problematic. We fail to recognize that there are hidden barriers to access to these positions in medicine, just as there are in other fields of professional practice. These practices that unintentionally preclude women from holding more positions of power. The notions of quotas and targets to increase female engagement and presence in these positions are frequently debated. And regardless of one of how one might feel about the concept, 
It is clear that we as a profession perform unbiased selection so poorly, unfortunately, that gender quotas are often seen as a necessary crutch for many organisations to formally consider women of merit for elevated positions. It is imperative that we address head-on these gatekeeping practices that promote the same types of individuals for positions of power year in and year out. One of the most famous examples of such gatekeeping practices was published in 1997. Two Swedish immunologists noted that significantly more women were completing scientific PhDs, but only were half as successful as their male counterparts in securing postdoctoral fellowships. The immunologists asked the Swedish Medical Research Council for permission to study its evaluation practices to determine if men and women might be treated differently. Initially, the institution refused because they were convinced that their processes were based on pure meritocracy and were gender-blind. It took two years and a court order for access to this information to be granted, and what they found shocked the overwhelmingly male scientific committee. Women did not have to be twice as productive in the scientific literature as men. They had to be two and a half times more productive in order to achieve the same score. When translated into modern-day work equivalents, women had to publish the equivalent of three articles in Nature or Science, which today have impact factors of 41 and 42 respectively, or publish 20 articles in a journal with an impact factor of three. That's nearly a decade-long body of scientific research more than men, simply to be scored equally to their male colleagues. This is a striking example of the fact that, despite our desire to the contrary, scientific reviewers have difficulty judging scientific merit independent of sex. Our systems are much more fragile than we think in the ability to eliminate gender bias and the use of professional titles. In 2017, a US academic centre published the rates of gender-based introductions at conferences. The study found that women were more likely to be introduced by their first names and less likely by their professional titles than men. A similar study at another US academic centre compared the use of titles during internal medicine grand rounds. The researchers reported that women introduced male guest speakers by their professional titles 95% of the time, yet men introduced female speakers by their professional titles only 49% of the time. The consistent use of professional titles should not be limited to the podium. And it is important that we be aware of using proper titles equally for both genders when introducing the doctor to the patient, or in the break room with other colleagues, or in written communication. Imposter syndrome is insidious, subconscious, and it occurs daily. It is important to understand that individuals cannot simply share their way out of imposter syndrome and that the onus of responsibility should not be on the individual alone. Talking about it is a great first step, 
but the hard work starts thereafter. A systematic deconstruction of the destructive behaviours, gestures, actions and words used in our ecosystem is required to untangle the cognitive mindset and reverse the toxicity in which women are expected to flourish. It is important that all individuals consider it their responsibility to combat imposter syndrome. Step 1. Acknowledge that imposter syndrome exists and evaluate its impact. How many of us have thought about asking a female colleague or a junior female colleague, have you ever experienced the phenomenon known as imposter syndrome? It's come to my attention that this is an issue. If you have, I'm open to talking about it. Back up your words by independently evaluating your own systems for hiring, promotions, and even making sure that surgical cases are divided objectively and equally among residents and fellows. Step 2. Change the way we speak about women. It is not as simple as being polite, and it's not simply enough to avoid being rude. Make sure that you consistently use proper honorifics between sexes. Consider the tone, content and language in your reference letters. The key is to refer to women's qualifications and professional attributes rather than their personal characteristics and physical attributes. Step 3. Stop with the sexist jokes. It is crucial to understand that junior female colleagues are silenced in these types of conversations. It's not uncommon for women to hear a sexist joke preceded by, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, or followed by, you know I'm joking, right? What those women see is that this individual who clearly knows the difference between right and wrong, deliberately chooses to say something inappropriate anyway and is exercising a privilege to do so. Women frequently smile and nod for fear of being branded as too sensitive to take a joke. This power differential is exploitative and it contributes to women's feelings of exclusion. A boys club mentality is more than just hurtful, it is harmful. Step 4. Become an ally and active mentor. Take the time to mention accomplishments because they may well be internalizing the opposite. Possible comments might include, I think you nailed that consult today, or that was really tricky but you handled that surgical case today with ease, and I'm really proud of that paper you published. Furthermore, if you catch them minimizing their success and attributing it to a team effort or fluke, for example, stop them and remind them to own their success that was so pivotal to the achievement. Being an active mentor requires taking a real interest in someone's daily activities and remembering that the power differential is psychologically exhausting. They may not necessarily come forth to discuss their achievements, let alone their fears and failures, which restricts the potential for growth and learning. Women are less likely to highlight their own achievements. 
highlighting achievements and removing barriers to feeling comfortable about discussing their own accomplishments and therefore their values too is important. And step five, recognize your own bias. Consider actively nominating deserving women of merit for leadership positions and other opportunities. Be aware that nominating women because they are female is demeaning and devaluing, and it does nothing to improve the ecosystem. Using gender as the sole criterion for nomination can, in fact, subject women to more criticism. When an opportunity arises, the process should be is that we consider all qualified individuals. The usual suspects, so to speak, will naturally be considered to fill the position, but an active intentional step must be included to consider women and minorities who are equally deserving of that position. Only then does one choose from the extended pool of candidates. This approach ensures that every nominee is a person of merit and it expands opportunities to achieve true diversity in the organisation. After the conversation with my male colleague and my failed attempt to balance the panel in terms of gender, I reflected long and hard about why I was so deeply unsettled that day. And it dawned upon me that it wasn't what I had said. That was my imposter syndrome speaking, making me feel like I shouldn't be assisting in developing that panel. Rather, what unsettled me was what my colleague had said so casually. I choose people based on a meritocracy. This could have meant only one of two things. Either that there really were no women who deserved to be on that panel, or perhaps my colleague had not taken the time to consider them. In this environment in which we live, it does take deliberate intention time and effort to find and nominate women of merit, but it is time well spent. Even as doctors and scientists, we are not immune to bias. Being aware that unconscious gender bias exists, intentionally changing our words and actions, and designing systems that robustly resist gender bias can help our organizations bring women into realizing their full potential. Otherwise, imposter syndrome will continue to flourish and we lose out on half of the world's talent, skills, and expertise. Promoting diversity in ophthalmology is more crucial now than ever before, and I want to thank Dr. Trin for sharing her knowledge and practical pearls with our audience today. Until next episode, I'm Laura Straub, Editor-in-Chief of CRST.